Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. Following on from our last episode on the American Plan with Caitlin Bailey from the Oldest Profession podcast, today we're looking at another facet of the history of sex work in America. Our guest is Jamie Lynn Blaschke, talking about the chicken ranch, the infamous Texas brothel depicted on stage and screen in The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Jamie is the author of Inside the Chicken Ranch, the definitive account of The Best Little Whorehouse, and he has actually interviewed Edna Milton, who, of course, inspired Dolly Parton's role in the movie. So today we're talking about the history of sex work in Texas, the first brothels in LaGrange, poultry as payment, and how the chicken ranch became a worldwide phenomenon in the 70s and 80s. It is a fascinating story, and I hope you enjoy it. Here's my interview with Jamie Lynn Blaschke. All right, everybody. Our guest today is Jamie Lynn Blaschke, author of Inside the Texas Chicken Ranch, the definitive account of the best little whorehouse. Welcome, Jamie. Well, thank you very much. I am delighted to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you. This was such an interesting book, and it covers a lot of territory. But let's go ahead and start at the beginning for people who are not familiar with this kind of history. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the early history of sex work in Texas? How central was it to the region's development? Well, you know, any part of the Texas, well, Texas or the U.S. frontier, the frontier territory, uh, when the Western migration of Anglo settlers uh, pushed into Indian territory, Native Americans displacing them, uh, wherever settlers went, uh, you know, sex workers followed. Uh, There were military outposts. If you had an army fort anywhere in the West, uh, there was a quote unquote hog farm that started up quite nearby with the saloons. The hog farms were a euphemistic term used for brothels in the era. And so Texas was absolutely no different following the uh, revolution uh, that separated Texas from Mexico and ostensibly set up an independent republic for a period of about 10 years. There were many immigrants coming in. uh, And uh, along with the immigrants, you had uh, sex workers coming in, setting up uh, brothels in saloons, uh, adjacent to saloons in nascent growing communities. As I say in the book, it would be hard pressed anyone coming there to say, well, you know, there's there's cattle as main industry and sex work is probably the other main industry. So the business of sex work really took off in the mid 19th century. How was it regulated in the years following the Civil War? And how did it contribute to the growth of uh, places like Austin, Fort Worth, and Waco? At the end of the 19th century, a view came to predominate uh, much of society that the best way to deal with the question of vice, in particular prostitution, was to regulate and segregate it. Uh, In that instance, regulated vice districts were established in many communities. The very first vice district, uh, legal vice district in the U.S. was in Omaha, Nebraska, which is a surprise to many people. The second legal vice district 
was established in Waco, Texas, which today is home for Baylor University. So <laughs> from, from, from that point on, most major cities, if not all, established one or more legal vice districts. Uh, every city in Texas had one, Houston, Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, Fort Worth, even the smaller secondary and tertiary uh, markets, uh, communities such as uh, such as uh, Texarkana and Lubbock and it was just part of the fabric. And what this did enable it enabled a control uh, and it enabled a management. Uh, most of the women who were working as sex workers uh, were required to undergo regular medical exams to you know check and be on the lookout for sexually transmitted diseases. They were licensed and they were taxed, and this generated a tremendous revenue for the communities involved. Many of them, half of their operating municipal budgets came from these licensed vice districts. That's absolutely incredible. And what did those municipal governments use that money for? Anything and everything, whether it was uh, road repair, sewer work. I mean, it was part of the budget. It, it paid for policing. You know, it's it's whatever municipal governments use finances for today, essentially just turn back the clock more than a century. And there you have it. Uh, I will say that in my research, the legalized and regulated approach was not without problems because you did seem to have uh, exploitation. Uh, police would shake down sex workers for payoffs and bribes, uh, even though it was ostensibly legal, a lot of the prejudice and stigma that sex workers historically have faced uh, persisted. But it was an integral part of the state's fabric uh, from yeah. from uh, certainly the earliest days of statehood, if not even the days of the Republic. Wow, that's just amazing to think about. So tell us about women in Texas at this time. So why did so many of them turn to sex work and what were the dangers for them? Well, much like the rest of the United States, there weren't many legitimate career options for women in this period of time. Uh, you know, when, uh, if I can jump forward a little bit, uh, Miss Edna, Edna Milton, who was the last madam of the chicken ranch who I interviewed, she had two stories she told about it. Uh, she once told actually the group of performers who were rehearsing for the original Broadway show of Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, she got into prostitution because she had a habit. That habit was eating three meals a day. <laughs> she later told me that when you're young, with no education, it doesn't take very long to discover she can make more money on her back than waiting tables in a restaurant. And I suspect I have no empirical evidence to back this up, but I suspect many women who get into the sex trade, you know, have similar experiences with that. Throughout history, obviously, pregnancy has been a major hazard of the sex trade. Um, in the decades prior to the 1950s, when penicillin became widely available for treating sexually transmitted diseases, I think people today don't realize how serious a scourge STIs were in the era. Yes, gonorrhea was there that could leave someone infertile, but syphilis was essentially a death death sentence 
syphilis not only would kill you, but it would leave you disfigured and also drive you insane in many cases because of the way that bacterium worked. It was such a scourge that in the early decades of the 20th century, the most effective treatment, now many people may have heard about the mercury vapor treatments and other horrific chemical approaches to treating syphilis, but the most effective, and it quickly became the most popular because it was actually effective method of treating syphilis was to purposefully infect anyone who had syphilis with malaria. Oh my God. Because the malaria infection would provoke fevers in the victim that were so high, it would actually kill the syphilis bacteria. So they would be cured of syphilis if they survived the malaria infection. Wow. And I, you know, circling back around to pregnancy, Abortion was not legal in most places. Uh, there were many back alley abortions, uh, which many times did not fare well. There were many uh, chemical uh, drugs um, euphemistically marketed to remove obstructions, whether mm -hmm. or not these were efficacious or not, kind of leaves it up to the imagination of the reader because, you know, there was no FDA at the time, so people could you know, hawk any type of snake oil and make any type of claims, particularly since abortifacts were technically illegal at the time. So, you know, there was not really any good options for women, you know, to, you know, have a productive trade outside the home if they were, you know, unmarried women, uh, unmarried mothers, if they were widow. I mean, they, just society did not give them many options. Okay, so the Chicken Ranch was a legendary brothel open near LaGrange from the turn of the 20th century until the 1970s. Now, you actually grew up in that area. What is LaGrange like? You know, the, the ZZ Top song does not give a lot of details. No, it does. It's a quintessential small town. It was settled by German and Czech immigrants, as was much of Texas. Uh, it's really idyllic. I mean, there are bluffs, uh, the Colorado River, not the Colorado River that forms the uh, Grand Canyon from Colorado down to Gulf of uh, Baja, California, but uh, Texas' own Colorado River uh, just winds through it. It's really beautiful, got rolling hills, post oak savanna. There's uh, some bluffs over overlooking it. It's, it's really beautiful, beautiful land. And in fact, it was initially selected to be the capital of Texas, but uh, Sam Houston, when he was president of the Republic of Texas, vetoed it, and they ended up in Austin. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful town. You can get excellent kolaches there. Uh, it's it's uh, um, it's about four thousand people. It's not big, but then again, you know that's most of small town rural Texas. It's you know kind of prototypical as far as that goes. It started off small uh, shortly before the uh, Texas Revolution, where Texas broke away from Mexico. Uh, it was a trading post, as things are. It started off as a ferry crossing across the river along the La Bahia Road, which was a major thoroughfare in Spanish colonial Texas, leading from missions at Nacogdoches down to the missions in Goliad. Uh, San Antonio was in the mix, uh, and the community grew up around this uh, very trading post. Uh, 
1844, prior to Texas joining the Union, there is anecdotal evidence that a, maybe not going so far as to say brothel, but sex work came to LaGrange. There are several different stories. The most popular one that gets repeated most often is that a widow named Ms. Swine showed up from New Orleans with uh, two quote-unquote soiled doves in tow and set up shop. This is absolutely 100% false. I discovered in my research that there was zero evidence for this person ever existing prior to 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, someone somewhere made her up out of whole cloth, and that got repeated over and over again. So there is not and never was a Ms. Swine. Miss Edna told me that the story she had heard where there were two women with a hired hand uh, traveling through town on their way to San Antonio and, and their wagon broke down. They were not able to repair it. And so they were stuck there and the women eventually turned to sex work to get by. That may or may not be true. There's not a really any documentation to back that up. A letter from a local historian indicates that in 1844, a brothel opened up within a saloon there on the road where right adjacent to the ferry. And this would seem to have circumstantial evidence supporting it. There is a big field there at the time that they would have match horse races. That would be matching one person's horse against another person's horse, and they would bet on it to see which one was faster. Uh, other things kind of fell into place to lead me to believe that, yes, this is when it began. That area of town near the river by the 1880s had become known locally as Kalamazoo. That was the vice district. And there are references to brothels and sex work going on there and probably gambling and other types of vices as well. Around the early 1890s, a bridge was built over the river and traffic started bypassing the old ferry landing because obviously the ferry was obsolete. So a second vice district opened in town, or I should say developed in town next to the train station. And so you had two competing vice districts at a period of 10 years before the Kalamazoo vice district by the river died out. The one in town was not well regarded. It was uh, called the Shacks. It was a series of rundown hotels and cribs and hovels that uh, catered to travelers and the train workers and, you know, anyone else that happened to pass through town. Mm. All right. So tell us about Aunt Jessie and the early days of the chicken ranch. Is it true that they accepted live chickens for payment? <laughs> Aunt Jessie was interesting. She uh, grew up in Waco, which is at the time that she was there had a, the you know first legalized vice district in Texas. She would have been aware of that. There is no evidence that she ever worked there or spent any time in that vice district, which was alternately known as Two Street or the Reservation. By 1903, she and her elder sister, Alpha, had moved to Austin. And there, we do know that she was involved with sex work. In 1903, shortly after moving there, she there is a notice in the Austin American Statesman 
referring to her, um, Jesse Williams, and she was she was born Faye Stewart in Waco, but when she got to Austin, she changed her name to Jesse Williams. Jesse Williams was uh, fined five dollars for vagrancy. Vagrancy at the time was the preferred euphemism for prostitution, sex work. So she was in Austin engaged in sex work as early as 1903. By 1910, she was in working in a brothel as a quote-unquote um, maid. Uh, it was distinct because most of the time the sex workers living in a brothel were listed as boarders. Most of the brothels at the time, at least in Texas, uh, went under the uh, nom de plume of a, a boarding house. Mm -hmm. And so the sex workers in the brothel were known as boarders. Jesse was uh, listed as a, a, a maid, which was a subtle distinction. So I'm, I believe that she was moving into management. By 1911 and 1912, she and a partner, Grace Copeland, had purchased and were operating their own brothel in LaGrange. So this is a woman who fairly quickly rose the ranks and became a madam on her own. In 1913, uh, reform candidates gained control of the Austin mayor's office and the Austin City Council and passed uh, ordinances outlawing vice in their city, specifically any, any type of sex work. Again, this is the early years of the 20th century, and most cities had legal vice districts. Austin was no different. Uh, Jesse's brothels were located in the Guytown district of Austin, which is now the warehouse district, a popular entertainment area. So within days, there are articles in the newspaper talking about the women of the district are filling up the train station, catching trains to go down to San Antonio or up to Dallas and Fort Worth or over to Houston because vice and sex work is still legal in those cities and not in Austin. Jessie doesn't go there. Somehow she ends up in LaGrange, which is not very far from Austin. The prevailing belief, and I have not been able to document this, is that she was recruited by the brothel owners in LaGrange because they had become alarmed at this type of reform sentiment because Austin wasn't the only city in the U.S. that had anti-sex work campaigns going on at the time. So they were concerned that this would take hold in LaGrange and put them out of business. The thinking was that if they had a woman as the face of the business, that would go down more easily and be more readily acceptable for the population and kind of diffuse the anti-vice sentiments. Jesse, however, had already owned her own brothel and wasn't going to be content to just be a mere figurehead. So within a year, she had gained control of all the sex work operations in LaGrange. She purchased 11 acres outside of town because this woman was a businesswoman. She was no fool. And she had already lost one vice district, uh, one brothel, and wasn't about to lose a second investment. So she moved operations outside the city limits into the county with the idea, you know, out of sight, out of mind, that would diffuse some of the resentment against them. And, you know, that's pretty much what happened. The chicken ranch from 1915 
ran continuously and was, you know, I don't know, it was it was an accepted part of the community, uh, the fabric and, you know, the state. It, you know, became legend. I mean, how many brothels have uh, hit Broadway musicals written about them? Wow, that's absolutely incredible that it that it got there. But the chicken thing is true, is it? Well, not really. Not really. <laughs> According to Edna, Edna said, okay, for your listeners, the story, and if they've watched the movie or seen the Broadway play, it said the chicken ranch got its name because during the Great Depression, the patrons, who at the time were mostly poor farmers, could not afford to pay cash. So they offered uh, livestock in trade. Edna said that was hockey poo. (laughs) (laughs) She said it was a story and nothing more. What Edna, according to Edna, the real story that she got from Jesse was that in the early 1930s, a grand jury with an aggressive foreman started, was seated and started looking into vice and corruption in the area. And there was some concern that they would target the chicken, the chicken ranch, which was not called the chicken ranch at the time and Jesse's place. Some members of the community suggested to Jesse that there were many people trying to make ends meet by opening chicken farms in the area. So if she would go down to the hatchery and get some chickens and turn them loose on our property, she go down on the tax rolls as a chicken farm and they might overlook her and not delve too deeply into what type of business she was actually running. So that's what she did. Now, chickens were only there for about a year. A, the grand jury's term expired and there was no more real interest in uh, attacking uh, the perceived vice in Fayette County. And the chicken ranch continued on as usual. Now, Jesse heard somewhere, or perhaps she made it up herself, the story about using chickens in trade. She was an astute marketer and realized that that was a much, much better story than trying to escape scrutiny by a grand jury and so started repeating it. And so initially in those early days, the euphemism of going to the chicken farm took hold. Eventually it morphed into the chicken ranch, but uh, it they they never, ever accepted poultry in trade. That is such a great story about about how it got its name. Um, I, I noticed, of course, with the the hog farms and the chicken ranches, a lot of the sort of brothels in Texas seem to have kind of like farm themed names. Yeah, well, for most of its history, Texas was rural and agrarian. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, it was not sophisticated urban metropolis by any means. Even even you know the capital city Austin was, you know, in the time period we're talking about was new. It was just carved out of the hill country, Dallas, uh, Fort Worth started off as a military outpost and then became known as a a stockyard, a a stop on the Chisholm Trail up to Kansas City. Houston was a swampy, muddy port city. You know, it's, there was not a whole lot in Texas other than open land to recommend. Everyone was farmers, essentially. It wasn't until the 20th century that you get to the oil rush and all this new money flooding the state where it starts to shift from this agrarian cowboy frontier economy into a more modern urban uh, outlook. You know, I I love that. I find that so interesting. Um, You know, when you look at 
the history of sex work, all these different times and places, what they call the brothels really reflects kind of what they have. Um, so just, you know, having these kind of farm themed names, is it's just part of this longer tradition. You know, you have, um, you have the stews and schools and nunneries and all kinds of things, but it's always something that sounds kind of um, inconspicuous. So, so it just cracks me up, of course, that they're, that they're called, you know, like chicken ranches or hog farms, you know? Oh, abs absolutely. And I, that's a point that I try to make when I'm talking with people is like the chicken ranch wasn't unique so mm -hmm. uh, what was special what was special about the chicken ranch it wasn't it wasn't there was you know through the first half of the 20th century you could not throw a stick in rural texas without hitting a small country brothel somewheres mm -hmm. they were everywhere and also this is plays to the isolation the independent town these small towns these small rural towns which you know were tiny by most standards they were you know, pretty self-sufficient. You had farmers in the area producing a lot of the own food, certainly producing a lot of the meat, the farm animals. There wasn't a lot of communication back and forth. Yeah, they each had their own small newspaper, but you did not have television stations. Radio was fairly rare. There were, you know, a few stations here and there. So you did not have that. Uh, certainly the travel was limited. You didn't have the interstate system. Most people didn't have cars, or if they did have cars, they were not something that you were going to, you know, pile the family into a road trip for Disneyland or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So these isolated communities were literally isolated. They didn't have that much communication. And you see this when the reporter from Houston comes in to start trying to close the chicken ranch. The sheriff of Fayette County, which is where LaGrange is located, uh, is highly offended by this. There's still a relic uh, carried over from England to the, you know, rural frontier of the high sheriff, that the sheriff is the ultimate arbiter of law and order in his domain. It's almost feudalistic in a certain sense. And so when LaGrange had outsiders come in and start trying to tell them what to do. You can't have an operating brothel here. They were more offended by the fact these were outsiders coming in and trying to tell them what to do than what specifically the messaging was. It's like, okay, you can't have a brothel. Well, the brothel part was almost irrelevant. It's like, come in here and say, okay, well, you can't, you know, have a main street that uh, doesn't have crossing crossing guards. It's like, well, you can't tell us what to do. You know, it's that kind of independent, we take care of ourselves. you mind your own business mindset that really played into it. Now, the chicken ranch did have some detractors in the community. It wasn't 100% love, but by and large, the community of LaGrange and Fayette County didn't have much of a problem with it. And the people who didn't like it generally didn't make much of a stink about it. They, you know, tolerated it just because they didn't want to uh, rock the boat, so to speak. They're, you know, Chicken Ranch had too many friends and too many supporters. So what was their relationship like with law enforcement? Uh, you, you have this great chapter about Big Jim. Okay. Jim Flournoy was a larger-than-life character. He had a long-standing relationship with the Chicken Ranch, uh, Dating to his predecessor, Sheriff Will Lassine, he had op he had operated as a deputy, the top deputy under Will Lassine, who was 
uh, sheriff there for approximately 20 years, succeeding his brother, August Lucine, who was actually born in Prussia and immigrated with his parents when he was like three months old. So you have this chain of command almost where August Lucine from Germany, very little opposition to prostitution or sex work, hands it off to his brother, Will Lucine, um, with much of the same attitudes. And then they passed the torch on to Sheriff Flournoy, who had been the deputy under them and knew both of them. So Flournoy's attitude was always, my clientele, my, my constituency has reelected me X number of times as sheriff, and not one of them has ever come to me asking that I close the chicken ranch. And so this is not a priority for them. It's not a priority for me. The chicken ranch and other, other law enforcement have uh, expressed some of the same attitudes towards me. I mean, it, it wasn't deemed a priority. Everyone knew it was open. People would say that the chicken ranch was the worst kept secret in Texas. No, that presupposes that it was ever a secret. The chicken ranch always operated openly. They didn't operate overtly, but they didn't hide. The only people in Texas who did not know about the chicken ranch were the people who did not want to know about the chicken ranch. It was common knowledge. Texas Rangers knew it. Department of Public Safety knew it. Uh, the FBI knew that it operated. Uh, sheriff Truman Maddox, who was sheriff in Austin County, which was an adjacent county, uh, summarized it uh, pretty succinctly in an interview he gave before his death. He said, you know, law enforcement always has to have informants on the other side uh, embedded within the underworld. Any criminal activity is going to know immediately if a legitimate law enforcement officer starts sniffing around. I mean, they recognize them instantly. So you have to have someone on the other side that's willing to share information with you. And that's what the chicken ranch did. The chicken ranch from the 1920s on operated under some restricting rules. They were there for one thing and one thing only. They didn't have gambling. They didn't have underage women working there. They did not um, tolerate drunkenness. They did not deal drugs or tolerate drug use. They did not rob their patrons or get them inebriated and, and roll them or anything like that. It was a straight-laced, buttoned-up brothel, if that makes any sense whatsoever. Again, <laughs> They were there for one thing and one thing only, which is not what you see with some of these other brothels in the Old West. They were based in saloons and gambling and everything like that. So the chicken ranch had a limited mandate and they stuck to it. And when law enforcement came around asking if they had heard anything about this crime or another, uh, they would freely cooperate. One story that was really popular, and I kind of debunk it, said that the Sheriff Lornoy installed a hotline to the chicken ranch. Now, this is actually kind of physically impossible. At, in, in the 1950s, uh, telephone service was not, you know, highly developed. I mean, you don't have your personal cell phone then like you did now. Most of rural Texas and most of the rural West probably did not have dedicated phone lines. If you did have a phone, it would have been a party line. And for 
those of you too young to remember, a party line had multiple families connected to one phone line. And so when someone received a call, there would be a coded ring to your particular phone. So some one house would have like two short rings, another would have two long rings plus a short ring. You know, it was each code and it was kind of based on the honor system that you didn't pick it up and listen in on someone else's conversation. What I suspect and other people I've discussed this probably agree, agree with me, they said that's probably most accurate, was that uh, Sheriff Lornoy had the phone company install a party line to the chicken ranch, but not attach any other uh, homesteads to that line. That way, concerning the sensitive nature of the business conducted at the chicken ranch, you didn't have the risk of uh, anyone eavesdropping and listening in. That's really interesting. So it sounds like they have a good relationship going, you know, with law enforcement. So what went wrong? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Marvin Zindler and the the kind of moral panic surrounding the chicken ranch? Oh, that that's interesting. Marvin Zindler is a character. If anyone has seen the movie The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, uh, the character played by Dom DeLuise is based on Marvin Zindler. And they toned the Dom DeLuise character down significantly. Marvin no. Zindler, yes, he was just <laughs> over the top. You can go on YouTube and look and see some of Zindler's restaurant reports, uh, some of his exposés. He is, he's just a showman. He started shaving his hair and wearing a toupee because he was afraid someday he might go bald. What on earth? Not, 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 not that he was going bald, but this was a <laughs> possibility in the future. I'm not making this up. Uh, he... <laughs> He was initially fired from uh, the NBC station in Houston, and the station manager told him when he fired him, you're too ugly for television. So Marvin Zindler went and over a period of time got extensive amounts of plastic surgery and documented every step of the way in one of the local newspapers. So he wouldn't be too ugly for television anymore. Now, he did a lot of good. He did a tremendous amount of charity work. He stood up for uh, the little guy in many cases, the victims of slum lords, uh, shady car dealers. So he came from a law enforcement background. He had been on the Harris County Sheriff's Department staff. He was the consumer affairs, um, uh, consumer protection deputy. And so he would go after a lot of uh, cheats and scandals and things like that that would victimize people who did not have the financial means to take any of these uh, predators to court. There was an election, as there often is, and the new sheriff came in and, and Marvin suddenly found himself without a job. He was quickly hired by ABC Channel 13, which was dead last in the ratings. And they knew him from his time as a sheriff's deputy because he would have very flamboyant press conferences. If he was announcing some big settlement or a big arrest, he would set up his press conference and he had a distinctive uh, Lincoln Continental car and he would drive up to the press conference and he would look. And if all of the TV stations and radio stations and newspapers in town weren't there yet, he would circle the block until all the media was present before he would step out and give his press conference. This is the type of personality he was. Wow. Yeah, he, he was he, he was fascinating, fascinating character. Okay, so he enters the story a little bit downstream of where the actual closure begins. I mentioned 
a little bit earlier that part of the restrictions the chicken ranch was operating under was that no illegal drugs were allowed. There was a corrupt officer in the Texas Department of Public Safety based out of the Houston Area Criminal Intelligence Division, who was essentially a drug dealer and a pimp. He had a woman at the chicken ranch who was caught dealing drugs. This set off all kinds of alarm bells, and she was kicked out because the sheriff wouldn't tolerate it, Texas Rangers, DPS. In early 1970s Texas, and this is around 71, 72, there was you know, a massive paranoia in the legal community about illegal drugs. That's including marijuana, including amphetamines, including LSD, you know, heroin, all of anything. They were all equally bad, and they were terrified of all of them infiltrating uh, the pristine countryside of the state of Texas. This officer went to the chicken ranch and said, you will hire her back, otherwise I will shut you down. And Edna said, basically, bigger men than you have tried, bring it on, because mm. we will not tolerate illegal drugs here because we will get shut down regardless. So, okay. So this corrupt officer who I have never been able to ascertain the name of, I, I still hold out hope, went back and basically launched an investigation out of Houston into the chicken ranch. He sent DPS troopers to stake out the chicken ranch and take down license plates of clients that were coming and going. Uh, they did this for several days until they were confronted by the sheriff. And the sheriff famously uh, asked them, y'all boys from intelligence? They said, yes, sir. And he goes, well, it don't take much intelligence to figure out what's going on here. Any little schoolboy in Texas knows what's going on here. <laughs> uh, basically ran him out of his county. <clears throat> you have to realize that this was well outside of the jurisdiction of the Houston office. This was in Fayette County, which was like 100 miles away. It was not approved by any superiors. It was certainly not approved by the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety. It wasn't approved by the Texas Rangers. It was a rogue operation. But they had started developing a file on the chicken ranch. This guy quickly figured out that he would not be able to close the chicken ranch through direct means, certainly not with the sheriff opposing him and without any support from his superiors. So he started a whisper campaign. He started saying... How can we be expected to enforce vice laws here in Houston when they're operating out in the open in LaGrange 24-7? Everyone knows about it. They're flaunting it. They are making us a laughing stock. We, we bust a pimp here in Houston. He starts laughing at us and say, well, why can't you close the chicken ranch? Before long, his entire division took up this mantra took up this viewpoint, started repeating it. You had Harris County Sheriff's Office pick up some of the same talking points, Houston Police Department. And there was a district attorney in Harris County at the time named Herb Hancock. And he heard this as well. He got a job with the Attorney General's Office of the State of Texas under Attorney General John Hill when John Hill won election in 1972. 
And so the former officers that he had been working with uh, told him, yeah, you need to do something now. You're in, you're in a position of power. There's obviously graft and corruption going on here, payoffs and, and other unsavory things that's allowing the chicken ranch to operate in the open. Now, again, the chicken ranch had a longstanding relationship with everyone in the community. The sheriff didn't close it down because the community didn't ask him to. So taking in a vacuum and not delving into all that history, you're looking at a brothel that's opening, operating fairly wide open. And the natural assumption would be, yeah, they're paying someone off because why wouldn't the Texas Rangers close them? Why wouldn't DPS close them? Why wouldn't the sheriff close them? Hancock looked into it and started his own investigation and quickly came to the same conclusion as the corrupt DPS officer that I cannot close this place through legal means. There is no political appetite for it, which reinforced his view, his belief that there is payoffs going on. There are payoffs resulting in the protection of this illegal brothel. So he hit upon the bright idea of recruiting Marvin Zindler. As district attorney, he had been friends with Marvin when Marvin was still a sheriff's deputy. So he met with Marvin and over a cup of coffee uh, proposed that Marvin launch an expose into the chicken ranch. And Marvin said, not only no, but hell no. He said, the chicken ranch is too well-liked, has too many political friends, and that would be the end of my career. And Hancock said, what if I can get you the DPS uh, file from the investigation from 1972 that would show that there is uh, documented knowledge of prostitution going on. Uh, we suspect there's payoff and corruption happening. Would that be enough to uh, give you cover and give you a base of, uh, to launch your investigation? He said, Marvin took that opportunity. And Marvin launched a series of exposés uh, on primetime television is the six o'clock news for about two weeks in July of 1973, shining a light on the chicken ranch. And eventually the backlash, political backlash, got so much that Governor Dolph Briscoe called Sheriff Lornoy and said, Sheriff, I'm ordering you to close the chicken ranch. Now, Texas is really bizarre with a lot of its laws. And one of the things people don't realize is that Texas has probably the single weakest governor in the nation. It is incredibly weak. It has very few inherent powers. And Sheriff Dolph Briscoe did not have the authority to order anyone at any level to co close a brothel or <laughs> enforce any particular type of law. And in his uh, memoir, his uh, autobiography, Dolph Briscoe said he waited for several weeks afterwards for someone to call him on that, that you had he had no authority to order the chicken ranch closed, but nobody ever did. But um, Sheriff Lornoy, I guess, respecting the office of the governor, agreed, and they closed the chicken ranch down. Wow. It's an incredible story. Now, you actually got to talk to Miss Edna. What is she like? Miss Edna was... She was a fascinating character. I don't want her to come across as the stereotypical prostitute with a heart of gold because that's an easy trap to fall into. She was a businesswoman first and foremost, but she did 
care for, or at least exhibit a minimal level of concern for the women she worked with because she had worked as a sex worker in some very sketchy conditions. She had been in Fort Worth at Hell's Half Acre, which was a former legal vice district. Well, after it was legally closed, vice didn't go away. Uh, many of the hotels there became kind of flop houses that were ad hoc brothels. And she had worked in there. And one of her roommates at a time said, you know, we should we should work on the streets and be independent because we'll make a lot more money then. And Edna was saying, well, that seems kind of dangerous to me. And uh, her roommate moved out and went onto the streets and within a couple of weeks had been stabbed to death by someone who was um, angry that she was encroaching on her territory. So, oh God, yeah, that uh, scared Edna. And so Edna departed Fort Worth after that, went to Austin went to Austin and approached uh, the legendary madam in Austin, Hattie Valdez, about working in one of her locations. And Hattie said, no, I'm full up right now. But if you ever heard of the chicken ranch, I think they've got some openings. I'll give you a reference. And Edna was kind of suspicious because she had heard of the chicken ranch and it was out in the country and it was green and it was nice and it was a good place to work. And she said, it sounded too good to be true. And whenever something's too good to be true, you probably ought to go into it with a healthy amount of suspicion. But um, she went there and she was driving up and was really impressed by the amount of green. There's a lot of trees. It's it's a rural area, even to this day, pastures and farmland. She says, well, that looks real nice because, you know, past several years, she'd been in uh, cities and just seen gray concrete and asphalt. So she got there in I want to say 1952 and ended up staying there 20 years. That was the longest she had ever lived in one place in her life, the time she spent at the chicken ranch. Now, she was, when it came to meals, this, this is interesting that I found interesting. I don't know if anyone else does, but she did not like fried foods. She did not like greasy or heavy foods. So, she had the cooks when they were preparing the meals, either bake or grill or anything other than fried. So they would have steak or they would have pork chops or chicken. Um, they would always have always have steak on the weekends because the women would be working more and need more uh, energy to sustain themselves. They would have uh, lunch would be served and then they would have dinner. Uh, always had vegetables with it. For snacks, she always had fresh fruit on the table. If if uh, women needed a pick-me-up, a uh, little burst of sugar, she would have fresh fruit there available for them to eat rather than candies or anything else that were more empty calories. So listen, listening to her talk about this, it struck me that the women who worked at the chicken ranch probably ate a healthier diet than many of their clients coming in. Mm, yeah, it, 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 it's just fascinating. And just there wasn't necessarily any any strategy or thought behind that, but it was just what Edna preferred personally. And so that's what she had for everyone else. And she would say that some of the women that would show up at her door looking for work would, you know, be fairly gaunt. They'd have a haunted look in their eyes. You know, obviously they'd been on the street and not been doing very well. And Chicken Ranch was like a last resort for them. She said, you know, come back in a few weeks. They'll have some meat on their bones. They won't have that skittish, terrified look on their face anymore. They'll look like real human beings. And uh, 
that, that was kind of interesting. She, she was she was proud of that, that she could uh, offer something of a refuge to the women who worked for her. What was it like for the women working there? Well, Edna was a disciplinarian, Not maybe not so much as uh, Jesse. Uh, one thing that Edna did not like that Jesse had as a rule was that they were a boarding house, ostensibly. So Jesse's attitude was that anyone who is in a boarding house has to pay by the month. And since their employment was tied with their residency, Jesse required them to work the entire month. Um, Edna thought that was foolish, um, counterproductive. So when she took over, she implemented a policy where the women would work at the chicken ranch for three weeks and pay their rent for three weeks. Then when they were having their menstrual cycle, they'd have that week off and they wouldn't have to pay. They could you know, go off and do whatever they wanted to and just return the following week and take up their three-week residency. So that was a quote-unquote liberalization of her <laughs> policies from, from what Jesse used to uh, enforce. Uh, Jesse had a policy of, okay, this much per minute the house gets, and then if you go up above that, you would have to pay this much. Edna thought the percentage uh, counting minutes was too complicated. So she implemented a flat split, 60-40. She said it didn't matter how long any of the women were with their customer, that uh, it just simplified matters. They would just be a straight split. Uh, Edna liked to simplify things. She had a rule book printed up that she gave to all the women who started working at the chicken ranch. And again, going back to the movie, if you see Dolly Parton's opening number, Little Bitty Pissant Country Place, there's a section where there where they start rattling off different rules of the house. Those were taken directly from Edna's rule book. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Ed, Edna, Edna didn't uh, uh, take any guff right there. Well, you know, I'm so glad that you mentioned that uh, the opening number of that movie. So I've got to ask you, I know we're running out of time, but how did this story become a Broadway musical? And then later on, you know, of course, the movie that that we all know and love with Dolly Parton. How did that happen? That, that That's just the most insane thing. Uh, Larry King, Larry L. King, not the talk show host, but the uh, uh, Texas writer from 1970s got when the chicken ranch was closed on national television because it made national news. Johnny Carson made jokes about it. It was, everyone was talking about it. He got an assignment from Playboy magazine to go write an article. Well, in typical Larry King fashion, he went to Austin first, hung out with a lot of the outlaws in that area, was drinking, partying, and missed most of the story with the chicken ranch. Uh, showed up in LaGrange, walked around for a couple of days talking to people, and then dashed off a gonzo piece of journalism, basically outlining his trip to Austin and LaGrange looking for a story, sent it to Playboy, and as he was about to mail it off, realized he didn't have a title, and so he just scrawled across the front, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. That was published in Playboy a couple of months later. A Broadway performer from Texas named Peter Masterson saw that article because apparently he did read Playboy for the articles, thought it would make a good play, and 
kept a copy. A uh, year later or so, he was at a party where he met Carol Hall, a songwriter and lyricist, also from Texas. They started talking about doing a collaboration. Peter Masterson suggested Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. They pulled Larry King into their trio, and then they also recruited Tommy Toon, a choreographer also from Texas, and over the course of the next year, put together Best Little Whorehouse in Texas at the Actors Studio there in New York. And it was probably the most unlikely Broadway hit ever. It started off off-Broadway, but was such a big success. It's kind of a big success because one of the shows, Jacqueline Kennedy, Onassis, showed up. And they were quick on their feet and got uh, some pictures of her outside the marquee and that splashed across all the New York newspapers the next day and suddenly the show was sold out they quickly moved to Broadway and it ran for 1500 performances that's that's incredible any way you slice it I mean it's wow. just one of the most improbable subjects for any type of Broadway performance I find it fascinating that it has never had a revival on Broadway uh, such a fantastic uh, run initially, and there was a successful run uh, national tour in 2000-2001 with Anne Margaret in the lead, and it's been in regional theory, you know, regional uh, productions ever since. In fact, apart from COVID, there's probably never been a weekend where it wasn't playing somewhere at a regional theater around the world. I've seen uh, versions from Denmark and Holland and and uh, Australia and England. <laughs> it's 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 hilarious. That's absolutely incredible! My goodness. And then of course the movie with Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds. Absolutely, and you know the movie is popular because Burt Reynolds and Dolly Parton. Um, they they initially hired uh, everyone involved with the play to develop it as a movie uh, because Universal actually uh, financed the Broadway version. So they had the rights to uh, Best Little Whorehouse from the beginning. Uh, and then once they got ready for production, they fired everyone involved and brought in Colin Higgins, who had uh, had a big hit a couple of years prior with Nine to Five, the Australian director, and some other people just and none of them were from Texas, and so it lost a little bit of heart. They rewrote some things to capitalize on uh, Burt Reynolds' popularity. Uh, Larry King complained that they just wanted to make Smokey and the Bandit go to a whorehouse. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of true. Uh, initially, this is this is one thing that I'm fascinated. This is an alternate history of what could have been. Uh, Universal was seriously negotiating with Willie Nelson to play the sheriff before Burt Reynolds entered the picture. That would have been fascinating. Would have been amazing. I, I'm it just trying been. to imagine that. Well, we we know Willie can actually sing. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, uh, you know, Dolly Parton, that was one of the career defining roles for her. Yeah. Uh, and, and so everyone has so much fondness. And, and, and the movie has some really, really fun parts to it, uh, especially Charles Durning during the, doing the sidestep as the Texas governor. I think that's that's just priceless. But I always say if if anyone has the opportunity to see the stage play, the musical, then do it because I think it's got a lot more heart. Uh, it's closer to what actually happened, albeit with broad strokes, but it's also funnier too. So 
uh, if anyone has a chance, you know, see both of them and then compare them back to back. And we will definitely do that. Gosh, what an incredible story and such a great book. So where can we find more about you and your work? Uh, well, um, most of the information on the chicken ranch and myself can be found at jamiebloschke.com. That's probably not the most memorable uh, or easy to spell URL, but uh, there it is. There's not too many Jamie Bloschkes on online, so you can track me down pretty easily. Or, you know, search for Inside the Chicken Ranch, uh, Texas Chicken Ranch. It's published by History Press. Uh, pretty much anyone can get it anywhere. Outstanding. Again, Jamie, thank you so much for your time. I've so enjoyed this. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Jessica. It was a total pleasure. Once again, I'd like to thank Jamie Lynn Bloschke for being our guest this week. His book is Inside the Chicken Ranch, the definitive account of the best little whorehouse, and it's out now. You can find him at jamiebloschke.com. I'd also like to thank our marvelous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram as well. You can check out our website at dirtysexyhistory.com and find links to our guests and our online merch store there too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there, and we're adding new stuff all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.